For over 50 years, Andre Jacomin has been a composer, producer, engineer, and arranger for projects such as Monty Python. Join us as we play his 2019 NAM interview on The Music History Project. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Welcome back to the Music History Project. This is a really exciting episode, one of the uh, episodes in which we play a full interview for you, and Andre's is a fantastic choice. I'm really glad that the team decided to uh, focus on this 2019 NAM Oral History interview. Um, my goodness, being a Monty Python fan since I was a kid, uh, it's really fantastic to uh, share this story with you. And I got to tell you, when I was in London and had the opportunity to sit down with him for this interview. My gosh, that was just one smile after another, and I think you're going to probably come away with a few as well. Uh, just remembering all those great memories of watching these movies growing up. And of course, you know, always look on the bright side of life is uh, a fantastic image that I don't think I'll ever uh, get sick of uh, of recalling and uh, the memories of watching it with my best friend Bob um, will always bring a smile on my face. So today we're going to focus on Andre's career, his uh, interview, and I uh, just really want to start this whole podcast off with a special shout out to Dennis Houlihan, who has been a supporter of our oral history program from the very beginning, who made this interview possible. Yeah, this is going to be an exciting one for sure. Uh, I'm a fan of as well of the whole Monty Python universe. And I remember when I was younger and a kid in school, I had a shirt that had a picture that just said, it's only a flesh wound. <laughs> and I made a lot of friends with that shirt. Um, just great stuff. And what a cool dude. Um, he had a really interesting early life and getting into music. And it's just a great story. So I'm, I'm really excited to listen to this full interview today. Without further ado, let's listen to the beginning of Andre's interview where he talks about his childhood and how he kind of stumbled into music and fell in love immediately. Andre, thank you so much for hanging out with us. No, no problem. I like hanging out with weird people. Okay. <laughs> there we are. My, 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 whole, my whole life has been hanging out with some very strange people. I'm glad I could be added to the list. <laughs> you can. <laughs> So one of the things I thought might be fun to talk a little bit about is your passion for music and how that developed into a career. Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? Um, I kind of did, really. I was always in um, sort of in wanting to be in a band and play music, and I always wanted to earn a living from music. Um, and I always remember talking to my school teachers all the time, and I was saying to them, hey guys, you know, I know what I want to do when I leave school and if I spent more time learning about what I want to do when I leave school because I know what I want to do rather than you teaching me history or geography and I said if I want to know about these things I'll go to a library, get a book out and read about it. 
So you're, you're teaching me pointless things when I know what I want to do. And they say, no, 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 you, you've got to do a proper job. So I'm going, oh, so are you telling me that people like Paul McCartney or Mark Knopfler, that they, they don't do proper jobs? And they go, no, 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 it's not, it's not like that, you know. And trying to convince them that what you know what you wanted to do, it was very difficult. So I had to kind of do it on my own in the sense of that you just have to knuckle down and uh, get on with it. So I, I joined a, a local band and then I, I kind of, my passion grew up from there. And initially I started out as um, a singer in the school band, as the lead singer in the school band <laughs> was my first port of call. I think that was the first time that they, they kind of realised that maybe I had a, a passion for, for music, but I'm not a singer, so I was the only one that was brave enough to stand up on stage. Now, and the funny thing was, everybody in my class couldn't play, but there was a school band, that were, a group I should say, who were um, about three years later than me, so they were all reasonably good players. So they always stood behind the curtain while my classmates <laughs> pretended to play, but I was up front singing away, which was quite funny. And then the other band asked me if I wanted to join them, and I said, no, it's all right, I'll, uh, I'll make my own way. So that's, that, that's my passion. Hmm. So what was the first instrument that you played? Um, I was playing guitar, and um, I started uh, playing uh, guitar, then in my local band, then the bass player left, and then at that time in the 60s, it was kind of, um, n nobody really wanted, was interested in playing bass. So um, I said, well, uh, you know, why, why can't we get a bass player? Oh, well, nobody wants to play an instrument with four strings on it. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, fine, all right, well, I'll, I'll end up doing it. I said, I don't, I don't mind, I wasn't fast, you know, as long as I was performing and writing and, and working out that was good and uh, so I ended up playing bass so it, bass became the thing that I was um, for, for the rest of my career mm. well I say, I say career but the things that I I did and um, and in between all of that you start mingling with other instruments as well so you know I was learning a bit of banjo for a while a bit of guitar, uh, acoustic guitar a bit of electric guitar uh, but bass was my main my main thing and I remember um, there was a, in the Holloway Road in Islington, there was a music shop called Nolan Music and in the window there was this Fender Precision mm. and I went, wow, what a guitar, and now I need that Fender Precision bass, I need, a, and it was £75, which was like an um, amazing good deal, but I had to borrow £10 to put a deposit on it off my dad, because <laughs> I didn't have the ten, ten pounds to put a deposit. So I dashed home and said, hey, Dad, can you lend me £10? He said, oh, what do you want that for? I said, well, I want to put a deposit on this guitar. And I said, I'll pay for it. I'll, I'll do some extra work to, to earn it. And so in the end, I ended up getting uh, the, the bass. And I've still got it today. It's a 1963 Precision. Wow. What color is that? Uh, it's natural wood. Oh, neat. Mm, so wow. it's uh, quite good. But I actually put Gibson frets on it because they're slightly wider than the Fender Strats, uh, uh, for, for frets. And it's just easier to position your hands up when you're running up and down that uh, sort of fretboard. But um, I don't play so much anymore because now I'm more producing, producing things and um, and obviously I have my own recording studio now, so I'm doing more sound design. And for the most part, I'm actually doing film soundtracks now. So that's where my my main career has sort of ended up. But I still do music when I get asked to do it. So my passion for that is still, it's still there. Uh, 
That's awesome. That's mm. very cool. I'm sort of curious. What did you find an amp that uh, you always used your P bass for? Um, I used a Marshall until it got stolen, which I was gutted because oh. uh, in in the in the studio I had one day I saw somebody hovering around and mm. it, I didn't realise it was their second visit to see what else they could pilfer. It was only about a week later, and I went, "Where's my amp gone? That bugger!" <laughs> <laughs> I thought. Um, I thought I was really quite depressed about that because it meant a lot to me, the, uh, uh, the Marshall. But I've had quite a few in the in the past. I've had Soma amps. Mm -hmm. and Soma used to make their stuff, and um, uh, an orange amp I had, uh, a high watt I had for the time being. But the Marshall was the one that I really, really missed dearly. I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, your recording experience and how that career. Um, I. Because I wanted to further my career in uh, the media in general, so I thought, well, uh, it, was, it was kind of interesting how I actually got to that because um, at 17, um, one day, I was walking up uh, Wardour Street, which is in the centre of London, and I saw this sign on the door saying, T-Boy wanted for recording studio. And I thought, wow, I said, that would be fantastic if I could get a job in a studio, then I wouldn't have to pay for recording. I could have all the recording time I want. So I went for the job and um, I thought um, I wanted to make a kind of impression. So what I did was I rang my mother up and I said, Mum, can you come up with me? So I got this interview and just come in with me to show that, uh, give me a reference because I'm going for this job. So she went, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. So she came up, uh, up into London and um, I saw a chap called Bob Court. Now, Bob Court was quite a famous skiffle player in the 50s. And uh, he did things like uh, TV shows and in the band with uh, all Lonnie Donegan and all those skiffle guys. So, and I didn't know this until a little bit later when, I, uh, when that, but anyhow, he said to me, um, that's very good, Andre, after this interview, as we were going on. He said, I'd like to have a word with your mother now. So I, he had a word with my mother, I had to leave the room. Then I went back in and he said, okay, Andre, he said, look, I'm gonna take a chance on you, I'm gonna give you the job. Uh, we've had six people in six months. I expect you to be no different. And that's the th that was my trigger point, because I thought, he expects me not to be any different from six people they had in six months I said, I'll show him, I'll show him wh wh where it's at and stuff. So um, in the end, um, I just maintained a, a really kind of like strict routine of the duties that I had to do. And it was very strict in, in studios in the early days, was, was very strict. Um, and I had a, an amazing teacher called Alan Bailey, engineer, who used to work for Radio Luxembourg, who was... Um, uh, he was the studio manager at Luxembourg. He left to join the studio I worked in about three or four weeks before I joined. And he was um, kind of just an amazing guy that spent a bit of time showing me things. I would sit observing what he was doing and then afterwards, after the session, I would ask him about, um, well, why did you do this? How did you do that? And then um, uh, after he went home, I started messing about in the studio, doing things like, um, what, how Joe Meek used to kind of do experimentations about lining up machines and doing phasing and then reversing the tape and, and I, I was just messing about and learning all of that um, and because it was all on tape and everything was analog and doing tape loops so um, that was kind of interesting and it, that's kind of how I 
I sort of got into doing the um, studio side of things. You guys, it's so interesting to hear these stories and Andre's background. It's kind of fun to relive it in the order in which it happened because we all know what's going to happen next. And it's kind of fun to hear all these little different segments of his background and how they basically tee up the perfect scenario for him and what he creates for Mighty Python. And I, I really love, you know, the fact that he's talking about different recording techniques because I've listened carefully to the audio on some of those movies. And it's like, this would never work in like a pop record or, you know, basically any other setting. But for Mighty Python, it's like absolutely perfect. So, uh, you know, I love that about him and, and just his creativity and the fact that, uh, you know, he wasn't afraid to explore with different instruments and different techniques, which I think, again, lent to a uh, fantastic result. Yeah, he... Uh really lucked out when he uh, saw that T-Boy position posted for the recording studio. If he only knew at that point what was going to happen and, and all the opportunities he was going to get, it's quite the quite the story and, and quite the road that he's traveled down, and we're only halfway through. So up next, we're going to hear Andre talking about meeting Michael Palin and their early Monty Python work and pretty much everything that they did together and all of the amazing Monty Python goodness that you know and love. So let's get back to the interview with Andre Jackman. And inevitably, it kind of became sort of more important than the music. The music became secondary to my studio life. But of course, um, it was costing me more money to get to work, so I still had to play in the band at night. So I would be doing my studio sessions during the day, dashing home, loading the van up, driving to the gig, play, come home, get up in the morning, do this, you know, and it was, it was, it was hard work. It was really quite hard work. And then one day, um, I was, uh, Alan decided that he wanted to go back to Luxembourg for a, a spell and I was offered his position, it was after about a couple of years I think and so I'd, I'd become quite proficient at engineering by that time and producing and then uh, I took Alan's job and then one day um, a chap called Michael Palin came in mm -hmm. and uh, he said oh I've got this demo tape to do for a friend of mine um, and I looked in the diary and I thought, oh, okay, finally I could fit you in here. I didn't know who Mike, Mike Palin was at the time. And Python had just started, it was 1969. Hmm. 1969. And um, he brought his friend, we, we arranged to have some time in the studio. We re I recorded the, his friend and then uh, Mike doodled off. I then worked on the sessions. Then Mike would come in and have a listen and go, oh yeah, that's really good. And I was used to putting sound effects and music and things to voices and, um, or writing a bit of music for something. So, it was, so my music career was still involved in doing what I was doing and, and, and really enjoyable. So um, Mike said, oh, he said, he said, Andre, you know, this took about a year to put this thing together because I didn't know that Mike was recording the TV series and he said, Andre, look, I think you're fantastic at what you do. He said, look, I'm making a, a record fairly soon, um, and I'd like you to be involved. 
I went, okay, I said, look, you know where I am, give me a shout when you're, when you're ready, thinking no more of it, still not knowing about the Python connection or anything. So he toddled off, there's me thinking, what does anybody want to do a talking record for? <laughs> kind of what I thought at the time. And then um, I did another session for um, a live radio show, a world touring radio show, and they offered me a job. And they said, Andre, we think you're really good. Um, and we're, we're, we're touring the world. You know, we'd like you to be our, our main sound producer. And I went, oh, that's, that's really good. Um, I said, let me have a think about it. But then I kind of thought, you know, I'm in, in a band here. I like playing my music. This would take me away from all of that. And I would be purely working on a, a sort of cowboy show, I suppose, really. And um, coincidentally, in the same week, Mike rang me up and said, oh, would you like to come for a meeting? Well, I'm having a meeting about the record. And I went, oh, yeah, oh, great, okay, yeah, fine. So that kind of swayed me into what I knew what I wanted to do. So I toodled off to Mike Palin's house, and there was Eric Idle, there was Graham Chapman, there was Terry Jones, and obviously there, there, there was Mike. And then um, we were, sitting around, I got introduced to everybody and the, the door rings and then in walks John Cleese. Mm -hmm. Then the penny dropped. <laughs> I went, oh Christ, I said, I'm not, I'm, I'm just barely, barely 18, I've just turned 18 and these are all Oxford Cambridge guys. I've, I've just passed my swimming certificate and bicycle certificate. <laughs> these are Oxford and Cambridge guys. This is kind of like Nuts! This is nuts. So anyway, I, I, um, I said, yes, great, okay, lovely, right, what, what are we doing? Then Mike points to this huge pile of scripts, like about two foot higher, and he said, well, Andre, he said, look, that's what we need to do, that's what we need to get recorded. Um, have a quick look through that, and you tell us what you want us to do. So what an amazing opportunity. Anyway, and the rest is kind of history, really. That's amazing. Yeah, how bizarre is all of that? <laughs> <laughs> when, does ever, when does that ever happen, you know? That was unbelievable. It was kind of unbelievable that all of that happened in that sort of space of time. I could have taken the radio job. I, um, I, you know, I could have carried on playing in clubs and pubs. I could have stayed in the studio all the time and all that. And then I kind of just fell into the Python thing. And the great thing about Python was, which was great for my benefit, was that they did everything. We did theatre, we did TV, we did radio, mm -hmm. and we did film. So I, I covered a whole wide span of time. So I was, I was very, very grateful for the opportunity to actually work with guys that were just unbelievable geniuses. Now, did they have ideas of the music for it, or were you given a little leeway on that? No, there quite, quite a lot of leeway, because what we would do is we'd go into the studio, we'd record the sketches, they'd kind of direct themselves in what in their performance, everything. They'd all bugger off. <laughs> I'd put everything together, cut, cut all the takes and everything. And, um, and prior to that, what had happened was Terry Jones... Uh, had done the first album they did independently from the BBC. And what had happened was that um, it was at the Marquee Studios, and it was very early on, they just left the BBC to go independent on the, on the first record that they were going to be doing. And the engineer, um, where the control room was, 
um, the studio was sort of down the hall, so there was no connection between the two. So the engineer would do all the, the, the recording, Terry would be directing, Terry Jones would be directing. And then when it came to putting the whole thing together, Terry said, well, let's look at your notes and then we'll go through and then start picking the takes. And then the engineer said to Terry, well, I thought you were taking notes. And then Terry said, no, 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 you were taking the notes. Anyway, you can, consequently, this whole album cost them about, at that time, probably about 40,000 pounds to do because of the sheer time it took. <laughs> and of course, a nightmare because nobody took, and they had some like 300 tapes to go through, oh, to, to, just to go through the whole, the whole pile. Of course, when I come along on the next project that comes along, you know, there's me taking notes, take marks, everything. They do their recording, they bugger off, and then I put it all together. So I was a godsend. Think of all the effort, you know. And then we poured the first album um, together for about £10,000. So I've saved quite a lot of money at that time. And my, my production fee was £200. That was it. That was my lot. <laughs> but the great thing was that um, I kind of was just inspired by how they worked. But everything was left, going back to your original question, was kind of left to me to find the music, to do things what we wanted to do for um, what I thought was suitable for, for them. And yeah, it kind of worked out, it kind of worked all right. And then it, when we started getting involved in films and stuff, it was then when they knew that I did music and I had a writing partner called Dave Hellman. Dave Hellman and I, we were old school friends together, and uh, he was initially my first band. And Dave Hellman and I worked a lot together, and we had a, a I had a little, my first independent studio I had was with Dave. We, we had a little studio in my dad's greenhouse we built, which is where we did the first Python album, funnily enough. <laughs> and um, we, uh, we were asked, uh, certain times just to do bits of little intro bits of music or whatever for Python which is consequently when we ended up doing The Life of Brian when um, Terry Gilliam said to Dave and I said look can you write us a title piece of music for uh, the Brian uh, for The Life of Brian and we came up with the Brian song for the opening titles mm. so that was kind of interesting and then um, and consequently uh, we did lots of sort of bits of incidental music for them uh, so that was kind of good and obviously I worked on um, uh, Bright Side of Life which initially George Harrison produced um, and um, I he got tied up in one thing or whatever some project um, so I, I ended up uh, doing quite a bit of work on it as well and then consequently from th there are, although um, during the years we had to do various versions of Bright Side of Life anyway so um, it was always down to me to see how I could actually work to the original as we had it so that was okay yeah and then um, we ended up uh, getting a BAFTA, Dave and I ended up getting a BAFTA nomination for Every Sperm is Sacred we, we did as well so um, but there's all kind of like interesting parodies of things that were like existing um, so, you know, it's just quite easy to emulate but not quite copy <laughs> so um, I think we were quite good you know at that we haven't been caught out yet anyway <laughs> that's awesome mm. so we were very lucky we were lucky so music played a big part in producing into sound and 
and even I remember Terry said to me one day, he said, he said, Andre, you know, he said, you're unbelievably difficult to sell into Hollywood. And I, when he was doing his movies, and I said, well, why is that then, Terry? And uh, he said, well, he said, the, the trouble with you is that you do everything and you do everything really well. And not many people in Hollywood understand that because they normally have a dialogue editor, they have a Foley editor, they have a sound designer, they have a music composer, they have uh, all these things, separate segments. And of course with Python, being as cheap as they are, I would end up doing every, everything for them. <laughs> and so my, um, and I kind of grew up doing that through, through all, the, all the early sessions I did with uh, Alan Bailey, who taught me a lot in the early days, because we were doing a lot of commercials, and doing a lot of music production. Um, and uh, it was kind of a good education very early on that stood me good ground for later on working with Python, because as I said, they were quite, as you can imagine, it's quite, quite demanding. You know, you get six guys who are just like right on top of the, on top of their, their game. Mm. And you, you have to be really good at what you do. I think that, you know, or at least they haven't found me out yet anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that just always gets stuck in my head. And now I'm sure it's stuck in everyone listening to this his head as well. <laughs> so you're welcome for that. Um, this is just so great watching this interview, or listening to this interview rather, and if you'd like to watch this interview along with 4,000 plus more, we have them all posted on our website at nam.org, that's nam, N-A-M-M dot org, slash library. So let's continue with the rest of this interview with Andre. He's going to be talking about Monty Python's 50th anniversary and a couple more stories. So here is Andre. And it's our 50th year. This is nine, uh, 2019. This is uh, 50th anniversary year. So would you believe um, I've come here today to talk to you and I've just come out of a Monty Python session digging up old stuff that we recorded over the last 50 years and I'm actually trowling through all the outtakes and interesting stuff that we did and uh, there's some just amazing stuff and and you just sit there thinking my god I remember doing that and how funny it is and it's incredible and refreshing to hear hear stuff it's, it's just as great today as it was on the day we recorded it they are very clever yeah very cool that's mm. really neat mm. do you have any favorite uh, John Cleese stories um, do I have any John Cleese? Uh, well, yeah, I, I tell you one of the, maybe not necessarily, uh, a, a, well, yes, I do actually. I have one, one interesting mm. one was that um, when John gets hired to do uh, commercials and stuff, it was quite interesting. He was in a terrible rush one day and he, he came in to do this um, commercial. So he came in, he said, that, said hello to everybody, sat down. He read the script and he said, right, that's it, I'm off now. And then he buggered And then the agency people said, well, hang on a minute, we've only got one take. He said, no, 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 he said, Andre is terribly good. He'll sort you out, don't worry. And then he buggered off. <laughs> and I went, what, what? <laughs> John. But um, it was absolutely brilliant. But the thing was, what John actually, his performances is always very good. And normally, you know, you, you, you get what you get with John because it is John, you know, you hire John Cleese because you want John Cleese. And what, there's no, no point in, you know, sort of flogging him to death on, on something when it, you know it's John Cleese doing a good performance because he's always on point. 
Mm. Um, so that was good. There was another <laughs> instance which was funny when we were doing the live show at Drury Lane, which was really funny. And I hired a very good friend of mine, school friend of mine, to uh, do the mic positions uh, on stage before the ske different sketches. You know, the, the props guy would put on the props and then they'd come and place the mics and all that. And then uh, there was a bit of a pause on one of the sketches. So my friend then went, I had to go to the loo, so he went, went to the toilet. But what he didn't realise was that the toilet door locked from the outside. <laughs> Don't ask me why. <laughs> anyway, so he went to the toilet, it got, he got locked in, and then <clears throat> the sketch that he was meant to be putting the mics on was just coming into play. And it was a Neil Innes sketch, that's right, a Neil Innes from the Bonzo Dog Doodle Band. Neil walks on stage, looking around to see where the microphone was, and I hear this commotion behind me, seeing that my friend was walking down the aisle because the manager wouldn't let him in. He had to climb out of the toilet window round the front and the manager thought he was gate crashing in. And there was a commotion behind me. I said, I said what the hell are you doing? I mean, you should be up there. <laughs> and poor Ollie had to do his whole performance without any microphone. And this was at Drury Lane, which was unbelievable. It was just, it was just such a funny moment that um, we had to laugh because it was just nuts. Because how can you get... a toilet door that locks from the outside where you have to climb out the window and they wouldn't let you in you know and it was just it was bizarre then there were a few little instances like that where um, over the years which were kind of like quite bizarre but again it was very Monty Python wasn't it you know, if you think about it it's um true to form really it's really awesome mm. good stuff so uh, tell me about some of the other projects that you've been working on um, recently, um, one we started uh, about 20 years ago, in fact, <laughs> um, again, it, it's kind of Python related, it was uh, Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, and um, I've just finished that last year. Terry started doing a version of it 25 years ago. Um, and it was sort of five years in preparation before he started sh shooting. And then I don't know if you saw the documentary, uh, Lost in La Mancha. And uh, it was a major disaster when they started filming because um, just everything on the first day of shooting kind of happened all at, all at once. Um, I was working on a song for uh, Terry at the time. Um, and what had happened was, it was, they were shooting out in Spain and it was the worst floods they had uh, ever. So of course, you know, they, um, uh, the canteen was washed away, the toilets were washed away, they uh, lost a couple of cameras at 100,000 each. Anyway, the insurance company pulled it, the bond company took over and the whole thing got cancelled. Mm. And um, so it, it took about 20 years before Terry had got the finances again to <laughs> keep, keep, keep making this uh, film. He kept going back to it in between all the films. In between of that, I'd um, obviously worked with um, The Zero Theorem with Christoph Waltz for Terry. We we'd, um, did that. And I think Terry did Brothers Grimm in between that as well. So. Um, We've just finished uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote last year and it comes out in America in April, I think, mm -hmm. I think, or certainly um, Canada and America, I think it's April it comes out, yeah. Uh, no UK deal yet, but um, so if you look out for that, 
it should be quite good. And mm. it's got um, Adam Driver and uh, playing uh, himself and Sancho, and uh, it's uh, got Jonathan Price playing Don Quixote. Good cast, it's a very good cast. And you wrote the song for it? Uh, no, um, Rocco uh, from, uh, it's just a friend of Terry's from Spain actually worked on that. I did all the sound design for it. So we manipulated a, a, a bit of the music here and there so, um, for it. But um, no, it's a good film. I think it's, it, it, it's one of Terry's kind of ones that work really well. And I, th I, th I think it's uh, worth, definitely worth catching. That's, um, yeah, very good. I'm very proud of it. That's great. Well, this is great fun. I really appreciate hanging out with you. Thanks okay. so much. All right. Well, thank you. So that is Andre. And I have to say, not having a huge background with Monty Python, I now have a much bigger appreciation for it and have already YouTubed many clips and songs. And I will, I think, forever, like Mike, have that song stuck in my head and just be bopping around and be looking like a crazy person singing it to myself. <laughs> but it was such a great, I loved listening to him and his, um, just his story and how he immediately knew when he was younger that he wanted a career in music and pretty much never letting go of that, which I think all of us can appreciate and, uh, and feel similarly to, but uh, great interview. Well said. I really appreciate you saying that. And, you know, just flooding through my mind are all these great memories of watching these movies. I mean, the meaning of life from 1983 was so great. And, and um, almost the truth, um, you know, all these things are, you know, just hitting me that uh, I think all of us are going to be now cursed with uh, starting our uh, favorite Mighty Python quotes for the rest of the day. So in addition to apologizing to you personally, we're also apologizing to your loved ones and everyone in your home, uh, because if it's anything like me, we're going to drive them crazy pretty darn quick. Um, but what a fantastic opportunity. Again, uh, I'd love to uh, shout out uh, Dennis Houlihan and, and Bob Wilson and those who really helped us get this interview uh, with Andre. Thank you, Andre, who has since actually given us uh, some introductions for some other people to interview. So uh, he's now one of our supporters, which is fantastic. Um, so uh, thank you all uh, for your participation and thanks for listening. So you will be hearing from us in two weeks. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.